Welcome to The Kick in the Cast, the audio blog of a wannabe podcast novelist. My name's Chris, and this is episode 25. Hello, and welcome back to The Kick in the Cast. So I'm writing this a few days in advance, and I'm going to be a little presumptuous here. The day before I wrote this, I decided to splurge a bit and purchase a microphone isolation booth and mic stand. So I'm recording this episode standing and reading off a tablet as opposed to my desktop computer. It's a bit of a shift, but I'm hoping the improved sound quality will be worth it. So today I have chapter 24 of Outcast all set to go. As always, I'll be cross-posting this episode on the original Outcast podcast feed, and if you're listening to this there, I'd encourage you to subscribe to the new feed at kickit.yo5.ca or at podchaser.com. So, without further ado, let's get into chapter 24 of Outcast. Outcast, a novel, written and read by Chris Fitzton. Chapter 24 Two weeks passed since the incident at the docks. Grandfather had visited twice in that time, but not once did he mention anything about answers to what we suspected. If he had, it would have justified my decision to just give it all up and run away with Teki to some unknown corner of the world. Was it the right decision, though, or was I blinded by my love for Teki? I wanted to spend the rest of my life with her, but the thought of leaving without knowing the full story didn't fully sit right with me. I tried to write the unease off as just having to accept something beyond my control, but even that didn't really help. I would never see my family again if I chose this path, and it stung. It stung because I didn't ask for this life. It stung because I was a pawn for someone else's vendetta against my family. It stung because against such overwhelming physical and political odds, there was nothing I could do. I had no choice but to accept things the way they were. Over those two weeks, I could smell the approaching autumn on the wind. The air had developed a crispness to it, and while still comfortable, the nights were beginning to grow noticeably colder. For me, with thoughts of autumn inevitably came thoughts of academia. Cyrus assured me during one of our visits to the warehouse that our forged credentials were solid enough to get Teki and I into school. Of course, my look and scent might raise some suspicion, but I felt I'd been away from school long enough that no one would really recognize me. Max, Tomas, Risha, and I would have to concoct a cover story to explain why this new tiger was with them so soon after another tiger had died. Perhaps we'd have to keep things at arm's length when in public. I found it interesting that Teki was fascinated at the prospect of an entire campus dedicated to education. She explained to me that some tribe members would leave the traditional way of life to seek a more modern existence. However, some would return after several years, sharing with the tribe what they learned or gained. Some were teachers, who offered to educate the young in the ways of the world. As a result, Teki and others her age attended a much more open-air concept of a school. She had the academic basics down, 
and learned much of the history of her people's heritage. She also learned the many duties required to help the tribe continue and to prosper. If not for her exile so soon after her coming of age, she would have chosen any number of roles to fill for her tribe. I was concerned about having to quit my job because of returning to school, but after some research I learned that was unnecessary. Many who came of age joined the workforce, but also wanted to continue their schooling to completion. As a result, Chantal made it mandatory that all lessons were recorded and made available for download by registered students. I knew it would make for some hectic weeks during those winter months, but in the end it would be worth it. Thanks to Cyrus and the Foundation, I was able to get my registration all set up for the upcoming year. Taki followed suit, registering for a grade level matching her age. I also began the process for taking a grade challenge exam. My year in a coma had cost me a year's worth of education, which would force me to be a year behind my friends. If I challenged the grade and succeeded, though, I would be at the proper level. The preparation for my exam became part of my daily routine before long. I spent my spare time both studying and just being with Teki. She seemed as determined to help me with my studies as I was to succeed. She would quiz me every night on the material I'd gone over, and let's just say her method of rewarding me made for an incredible incentive. True to his word, the Snow Leopard ended up resigning from the docks a few days after the incident. I hoped he would be safe and find a better life away from all this, though I knew I'd never see or hear from him again. I also hoped that he took my request to heart and forgot about everything, including the stranger who'd saved his life. As for the Paklas who attacked him, I learned through Sharia they were all involved in some accident or another. Good. They kept their word to the mysterious stranger who'd handed them their collective hides. Of course, the real test would be when, or if, they returned. If any of them recognized me, then Grandfather's morbid advice on what might be necessary, well, might be necessary. I wasn't looking forward to that prospect. It was disturbing to think about, but the reported cases of exile suicides at the docks had dropped off to nearly nothing after the incident. I say nearly, because as much as I'd like to believe such a thing didn't happen on its own, there were still exiles working here who couldn't see past their own bleak, shamed futures. I could only hope that reduction would clue in those who controlled the docks, and they would take proper actions. As far as my training went, Krasa said nothing more about my third choice when it came to my exile. He knew that I knew what it was, and he didn't want to pressure me into going down that path. Perhaps it was to help keep my mind on training, and not to rush it. We'd both seen the consequences of my imbalance, and while Krasa loved to see my enhanced strength in action, he knew that I was already running too close to that edge. I had to admit it was tempting to push things, but the memory of Teki's terrified muzzle that day was enough to keep me on the straight and narrow for now. My training was the only remaining tether keeping me this close to the clans and my life as an exile. It felt a waste to stop when I'd come this far, and knowing how to fight would come in handy as Teki and I moved forward. I wanted to protect her, and who better to do so than one of the fabled Lautari? 
If the outcome of the real battles I'd had were any indication, achieving mastery of this art would indeed make my legacy one of legend. That tether, though, also kept the indecision burning in my mind. It wasn't the beast berating me for wanting to leave, but rather a growing sense of confidence. Each training session made me feel that I was growing as a Lautari. I'd never felt so in tune with myself, as though there truly were none who could stand before me. But my test wasn't one of raw physical prowess, was it? The option to confront the council with my accusation was a test against the alleged machinations of a clan determined to possess something from antiquity. All the growling and glowing eyes in the galaxy couldn't stand against such political maneuvers. As for my third option, finding the Kalpak on clan grounds and retrieving it, that was a simple numbers game. No one knew how many clansmen lived on the Midnight Fang's estate, but rumors were the number was substantial. I could take out a few of them, but eventually the numbers would work against me. No one person was strong enough to go against an army. Were they? I fell in love with the autumn that year. Any deciduous trees around the dwelling slowly changed color as the days wore on, changing the sea of green to a maelstrom of reds, yellows, and oranges, before the leaves ultimately fell to the forest floor. The pulse of the entire world seemed to be slowing, as though preparing for some grand hibernation before the snows fell and covered everything in white. I reveled in the feeling. As everything around me slowed down, I felt more alive than I ever had before. It wasn't the same for Teki, though. Anytime we walked through the forest, her hand squeezed mine a bit tighter, and she always seemed lost in thought. Her eyes often had a far-off look in them, and her muzzle would always twist into a contemplative frown when she was like this. I was initially concerned about this change in her mood, but resolved to wait to say anything. She always shared her concerns with me, so I figured she'd talk to me about it when she was ready. After a few days, though, I couldn't wait any longer. We were just settling down for the night. We had just gotten comfortable, with her head on my chest and her purring softly. I wrapped my arms around her and gently kissed the top of her head before settling back. You've been distracted lately, I finally said. She stiffened momentarily, as though I'd caught her in a lie. Is everything all right? It's just the season, she sighed after a time. You remember the map I showed you with the tribe's roots? I nodded, recalling what she was talking about. As we prepared for the upcoming school year, she had shown me the roots of the many different Tanayan tribes, and how they followed the migratory roots of the Kelherds. This time of year, she continued. All the tribes are approaching the gathering place. I remembered that she mentioned that. The gathering place was a nexus point where all tribes converged. It's one of the few good memories I have left of my past. I take it that it's a big celebration? I asked. She began to move until she was lying atop me. The smile that played across her muzzle told me she wanted to make sure she had my full attention. Still... I wrapped my arms around the small of her back, and she lightly kissed me before continuing. It's more than that, she answered. Gifts are exchanged, marriages between tribes are conducted. Marriages? I asked. So, if someone from one tribe marries one from another, 
how did they decide which tribe to stay with? It used to be that the tribe of the male became his mate's tribe as well, but that changed long before I was born. She paused to yawn. Now, each tribe involved makes the new couple an offer. It could be a new shelter, more food, promises of better childcare when the time came. One time, two chiefs actually wrestled each other for the honor of welcoming a new tribe member. I chuckled at that. How long does the gathering last? I asked. Until the spring, she replied. When it's safe to travel again, the high priest of the ten tribes gives his benediction, and we all go our separate ways once more. I heard her voice strain slightly at mention of the high priest, and I moved one hand up to gently stroke behind her ears. She pressed into my stroking ever so lightly. It's also a time when forgiven exiles are judged. Forgiven? Taki nodded. If enough time has passed, she began, an exile can return to the tribe lands and be taken to the gathering place. There they can appeal to all the chiefs and beg their forgiveness for whatever caused their banishment in the first place. If forgiven, they can stay with their tribe until the high priest judges them. Usually he just bows to the pressure of the chiefs and the exile is welcomed back. She noticed the concerned look on my muzzle and leaned down to give me a quick kiss. I know what you're thinking, and before you say it, no. Even if I found a way back to Tanaya, I don't think the high priest would even consider my appeal. Not yet, anyway. The wound is that fresh? I mean, it's been two years, hasn't it? It has, but that's probably not enough time for him. It doesn't really matter to me anymore, though. Well, not as much as it used to, anyway. She smiled and leaned down again. Our muzzles met passionately, and I could feel our mutual growing need for each other. Before long, our bodies joined once more in that most intimate of embraces, moving in the primal dance of near-feral lust. When we were both spent, we simply lay there, breathing heavily and waiting patiently for sleep to claim us. She succumbed first, and I lay there contemplating what we talked about. Cyrus mentioned to us that leaving Shanto was a risky move with our new identities, especially with the conflict happening in Lakaya. If the authorities caught us, they would have no trouble handing us over to the Shatlia or just executing us on their own. We were exiles, after all. Just one more reminder of the situation Teki and I were in thanks to forces far beyond our control, and one more reason for us to get as far away from them as possible. I just wish those reasons had been enough for me. I remember the day perfectly. Another week had passed. Only a few weeks remained before classes started. The weather was the typical chaotic mix of temperatures, which made you wear a light jacket in the morning, then take it off by midday, only to wish you had cold survival gear by late afternoon. The air was cool and filled with the sweet smell of the dying leaves. Taki and I spent as much time outside as we could, knowing that when the snow finally flew, such outings would be a rarity. Also, with school looming before us, spare time would soon be non-existent. I remember the look in her eyes as we walked through the woods. She was fascinated by the trees as they exploded into the colors of autumn. The tribe lands were mostly open plain from what I read, 
so woods like this were probably unheard of. She was probably seeing all this for the first time, and the wide-eyed expression on her muzzle made it hard for me not to laugh. Was it fate or coincidence? I didn't know, but somehow we ended up staring at that damned hedgerow that bordered on my former clan's estate once more. The last time we were there, Taiki was just finding her feet again during that second week of her treatment. I remembered how painful it had been to stare at it, but this time the pain seemed lesser. In the months between visits, I'd grown both in body and mind. No longer were my eyes those of a scared kitten wanting so desperately to come home. Now, I was a different person. The pain of loss was still there, but it felt more like a sentimental ache than one of desperation or longing. Are you all right? Like before, I must have been staring a little too intently at the hedge. I turned towards Teki and smiled. I nodded slowly, never taking my eyes off her. I am now, I said finally. It doesn't hurt as much as it did last time. Maybe that means I'm ready to move on. I felt her hand squeeze mine. Are you sure? she asked. I mean, your grandfather... We're stuck for the winter, I interrupted. That'll give us plenty of time to plan things out. I sighed. By the time I tell grandfather our intentions, we'll have everything accounted for. Then we can just move on with our lives. Taki nodded, and then craned her neck up to give me a light kiss on the cheek. I'm glad you feel that way, she said as we started to walk away. Besides, I'm pretty sure we're not the first ones to turn our backs on it all. Maybe Cyrus can give us some... I was so ready to put it all behind me. I wanted to follow the path of love and long life. I wanted to forsake those who had forsaken me. Yet, something wanted to remind me of what I was leaving behind if I did so. That reminder came in the form of a scream. Taki heard it too, and we both moved to investigate. It was coming from the other side of the hedge. Although merely touching the foliage was a death sentence in the eyes of the clans, we crept right up to it. Slowly, I parted some of the branches and peered through. What I saw before me made my first painful experience at the hedge feel like nothing. I saw two tigers, a male and a female. The male was on the ground and the female was shielding him from what I guessed to be his attackers. The scream must have come from her when the male went down. Surrounding the pair of tigers were five figures dressed in the official uniform of the Shatlia. What were they doing on Calamar property? Moreover, what were they doing attacking two members of the clan? That was a stupid move, spoke one of the Shatlia. The voice was hauntingly familiar. If we could be bested by someone as pathetic as you, we wouldn't be worthy of these uniforms. Worthy? You call yourselves worthy? The female spat. That was Tila, my older sister. The one she was protecting was probably Richard. The only reason any Rondoki bears that crest is because of Lars' influence. Were it up to the council... The council? the Shatlia chuckled. A group of doddering old fools who'd forgotten what it means to be clansmen. 
Only our elders worthy of that station, and when he ascends to the seat of the High One, he'll remind all of you what it means. Gods, I heard Taiki whisper. I turned to her. Dallin, that's him. The one from the warehouse. My eyes widened, and then it clicked. That was from where I remembered the voice. The night he and the others came to the warehouse. Why was he on estate grounds now? And why was he threatening Tila? The way he spoke of his elder, Lars, was also curious. What was that Pakla planning for the council? Did it involve the Kalpak? Or was there more at play here? Enough preaching, Torin, one of the others said, snapping me out of my thoughts. Let's be done with this. Of course, Torin said, taking a step towards Tila. She hissed in warning, but the panther kept advancing. Don't make this difficult, Torin growled. This has all been decided. You can either come with me now on your feet with some measure of dignity, or unconscious over my shoulder. Either way, the end will be the same. He moved to grab Tila, but she delivered a hard slap to his muzzle, making him hesitate long enough for her to scramble away. Even from the distance, I could see the conflict in her eyes. She wanted to stay and protect Richard, but at the same time she needed to deal with her own safety. I knew Torin would use that to his advantage. He would somehow coerce Tila into submission by threatening to finish Richard off. Enough of your games, woman, Torin hissed. Taki and I gasped as we saw him reach for the hilt of his sword. I almost screamed, but Taki pulled me back at the last moment. I expected her to tell me that this was not my business. Instead, she looked me in the eyes for a moment, then flicked her head toward the hedge. What she said next confused me, but made the beast inside almost purr in delight. Do it. I roared as I burst through the hedge. It only took a moment for me to claw my way through the foliage, and by the time I had, five surprised Chatelier were gazing at me. I wanted to chance a look back at Teki, but I didn't want to give her presence away. I moved toward the Chatelier, who were doing the same toward me, and thankfully away from Tila and Richard. As I approached, I noticed that this group was missing someone. Byrick. Given his clan's history with the Calamars, it made sense that he would not be a part of this. For that, I was thankful. I didn't want to face him again. Angry as I was at him, he was still a friend. This is not your business, stranger. Torrin said once we were close enough to speak. I'll gladly kill you another day for interfering with Shatlia business, but I have other plans for now. I didn't know Shatlia business involved assaulting clansmen on their own grounds, I said evenly. Is this from the council, or is the great Torin Rondoki so desperate for a mate he has to take one, and not even a Black Panther at that? Was this bravado? Where was this attitude of mine coming from? I didn't know, but I liked it. You're trying my patience, he growled. I smiled. In the distance, I could see Tila moving back to Richard, who was beginning to move. At least he was all right. 
I don't know who you are, but this is your final warning. Leave or die. We met once before, I said simply. That time I begged you to take my life. His eyes widened. That time, your Najari pet held me back as you murdered three kittens in front of me. That time, you decided I should live so I would remember what you did. Oh, the look on his muzzle at that moment was delicious. He finally made the connection. I wondered at that moment how stupid he felt when he fully realized the mistake he made that night. You. His word came out as a growl. He drew his sword, a gesture soon followed by the others. You came a long way to die, trash, he said, his usual sneer returning to his voice. I growled, letting my anger rise just enough. The look on Torin's muzzle told me all I needed to know. My eyes were glowing. No, I said, my voice also having changed. If anyone came a long way to die, it was you. I slowly dragged my tongue over my muzzle, hopefully only adding to the image. So, I said, Who's first? Torin answered through actions rather than words. He charged and swung his blade at my head, only to have me move inside of his reach and level a hard punch at his chest. I felt at least two ribs give under the force of the blow. I held nothing back. The blow sent him back several feet, landing him soundly on his backside. He clutched at his chest as he tried to get back up. Kill him! he bellowed. The others hesitated at first, giving me a chance to get a better look at them. Another black panther, a jaguar, a lion, and a puma. I didn't care what clans they belonged to. All I saw before me were five opponents who dared attack my sister. For that, they would pay. The second panther moved in. His blade moved quickly, but after dodging his strikes, I began to see a pattern in his movements. Krauss's teaching suddenly came to mind about recognizing patterns and finding the right time to strike. During a strike intent on taking my head, I ducked down and unleashed a punch to his stomach. As with Torin, I held nothing back, and the panther retched. Blood and bile erupted from his muzzle as he doubled over and crumpled to the ground. Two down. I had no time to savor my victory, because with a yell, the puma charged me. He came in fast and hard, his sword motions quick and precise. His speed made it hard for me to find an opening. I paid a small price for each successful strike in the form of a nick or a small slash on my arms and legs. I was going to be a bloody mess when this was all over. I knew that I had to draw him in, or at least get inside his sword's reach. However, his defense was solid. He wasn't making things easy. Brute force wasn't going to break it, so I tried to change tactics in the hopes he would make a mistake. I slowed down my evasions making it appear that I was getting winded. Sure enough, the arrogant Chatelier took the bait and brought his sword up on a high arc, intent on cleaving me in two. I moved just as the sword came down, stepped around him, and delivered a kidney punch with everything I had. He screamed in agony as he went down. That was three. 
If I hadn't seen the glint of the jaguar's blade, I would have lost an arm. As it was, his blade bit into my shoulder, though not enough to disable me. The pain made me sloppy, though. I dodged another strike and received a kick to the chest for my trouble. I staggered and barely had time to recover before he was on me again. He was fast like the puma, but much more savage. His moves appeared unrefined, as if he relied more on intimidation than skill. He was relentless. His blade was there to greet me moments after dodging it. On the outside, the attacks may have looked sloppy, but they were effective. He kept me off balance and unable to mount a counterattack, perhaps hoping that he'd win me before long. Alas, the jaguar knew nothing about me, or what the doctors had done to me only a few short months ago. He was the first to feel the effects of the drawn-out fight. His frenzied attacks burned through his energy far too quickly. Before long, his swings slowed considerably from where they had started. His breathing also became labored. He slowed down enough for me to start with some counters of my own. A few well-placed kicks and punches helped exhaust him further. It was slow at first, but eventually each time he staggered back, his recovery took longer and longer. Finally, he made the inevitable mistake. He reared back and swung in an arc meant for my neck. I ducked and spun in the same direction as his sword stroke, knowing that when I recovered, his side would be exposed. I planted a foot and lunged upward with everything I had. The punch to his side made him scream and drop his blade. The force of it sent him several feet away before he landed on the ground. He wailed loudly, clenching his side as best he could. You don't scare me. The growl came from the lion, who'd been waiting for me. He held his sword up and then dropped it. A sadistic grin twisted on his muzzle as he cracked his knuckles. And I don't need a sword to take you down, trash. His aura of confidence washed over me, making my whiskers tingle. He was more sure of himself than any of the others here. I winced. This was going to hurt. He roared and swung hard with his right, intent on taking my head off. His moves, however, were slow. It was an easy move to dodge. His follow-up was quicker than I expected, though, and he clipped me on the side of my head. Gods, his fist was like a wrecking ball. I staggered back and he pounced before I could move. We crashed to the ground and rolled around, trading blows until he wound up on top of me, pinning my arms with his legs. He rained blows down on me, and sadly I couldn't dodge them all. His blows were solid enough for me to start seeing stars. My mind screamed that if I didn't do something soon, all of this would have been for nothing. Tila, Richard, and even Teki were depending on me. My family was depending on me. I wrenched my arms free with a roar and grabbed his. I snarled as I applied pressure to my grip, aided by my augments. The expression on his muzzle changed from sadistic glee to surprise, and then to growing anguish as I continued to squeeze. His muscles were solid enough, but I felt my fingers dig through them until I finally felt the bone. With a grunt, I squeezed just a bit harder, feeling the bones break. 
The lion bellowed in pain as I released him. He rolled off of me, trying desperately to clutch at his arms, the movement of which only increased his agony. I considered knocking him unconscious more as a mercy than anything else, but I decided against it. For his part in the murder of those kittens, and for what was happening here, he deserved to feel the pain. All of it. I turned back toward Torin, who'd been watching slack-jawed as I tore through his comrades. He raised his sword shakily as I stalked toward him. I hadn't lost the glow in my eyes, and I could only imagine what that, mixed with a half-snarl, half-smile I had on my muzzle, looked like. What kind of beast are you? he demanded, though his voice lacked any true authority. I am vengeance, I growled in reply. Vengeance for her, I nodded toward Tila. Vengeance for the kittens you murdered in my presence. Vengeance for all the sins your wretched clan has committed, Rondoki scum. I looked around momentarily, still half expecting Byrak to jump out and save this pakla. Where is your Najari pet now, Rondoki? Does he no longer have the stomach for your indulgences? Or did he finally see that none of your kind are worthy of your title? You'll see how worthy I am when I have your head! He drew his sword back and roared defiantly as he swung. Had I stood there, his blade would have indeed severed my head from my body, but instead I ducked and swung my foot out, knocking his legs out from under him. He grunted when he hit the ground, no doubt feeling his ribs shift painfully, but he recovered quickly enough, sword still in hand. I didn't give him a chance to swing again. A kick to his sword arm sent the blade flying. Two quick punches to the face and stomach started him reeling. I closed the distance and began punching and kicking in earnest. It wasn't long before I could see and smell the blood and bile on his person. One eye was already swollen shut, and the other was well on its way. He screamed as I dislocated his shoulder, and then howled in agony as I brought the full force of my foot down on his left knee. I roared in triumph, feeling the bone shatter under my foot. He fell to the ground, slowly curling into a fetal position. I stared down at him for what felt like an eternity. This thing cowering before me once so sinister and superior to all, now whimpered like those kittens had. Was this truly the best the clans had to offer? Were those uniforms little more than awards given to clansmen whose elders had the most influence? If all the Shadlia were like this, it was a wonder that the council had survived for so long. Leave this place, I finally said to Torin, who looked at me fearfully with his one good eye. Never return. If I see any of you again, your clans will never find your remains. The fear I sensed from Torin told me the biggest difference between the other battles I'd fought and this one. The clans took their legends of the Lautari to heart. The moment my eyes came alight, the battle was as good as over. They knew it, but they chose to fight anyway. Even the lion, who was so confident, knew this would be a losing battle. Torn realized the error of his ways now, and was probably thankful it didn't cost him his life. I looked up and noticed Tila and Richard had moved closer, she still supporting him. 
My chest tightened as I saw the mixed look of fear and relief on their muzzles. You should go, I said, keeping my voice gentle. Leave this filth here and tell your elder what has happened. They nodded slowly, and I turned to go. Wait! I stopped, but only turned my head at Tila's word. Who, who are you? She reminded me of the snow leopard at the docks only a few weeks before. This time, though, it was hard to keep the sadness out of my answer. Someone you should forget. Taki was waiting for me as I emerged from the now-damaged hedgerow. She didn't care that I was bleeding and held me tightly. I saw the whole thing, she said, her voice sounding proud, in a way. You saved them. We should go, I said, returning the embrace. They're going to come, and we can't be here. She agreed, and we melted back into the woods as fast as we could. I doubted anyone would follow, but I also knew Grandfather would be at the dwelling before long, demanding answers. I really didn't care, though. I did what I did to protect those important to me, like anyone would have. Any penalty I suffered from this would be worth it if they were all safe. That was what I told myself, until I fully realized how steep the price would be. And that's our story. A week or so ago, I attended a webinar with Gravy for the Brain, which is a voiceover slash voice acting resource site. The site is filled with podcasts, webinars, and documents to help anyone who's looking to make their way into the world of VO or VA. The guest of honor for this webinar was Kay Bess. Now, who's Kay Bess? Well, if you've seen Star Trek Picard, she plays the voice of the computer on the show. This is now the second person I've had the privilege to listen to talk about their trials and tribulations in the world of professional voice acting. The first being one who did a character on My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic. Kay also runs her own coaching site and blog, and one of her entries is something I think every content creator should take a look at. It has to do with dealing with self-sabotage and that low feeling a lot of people, myself included, get when they're trying to put their voices out there. It resonates a lot with what Matthew Ebel wrote in his blog entry, You're Not Good Enough, that I talked about way back in episode 3. I'll put a link both to Kay's site and that particular blog entry in the show notes. I'll also put in a link to the Gravy for the Brain site in case any of you would like to check it out. In any case, I think I'll leave it here for now. As always, thank you for tuning in, and if you'd like to leave some feedback, please feel free to email me at outcastnovel at gmail.com, or you can leave a voice message via the SpeakPipe app at kickit.yo5.ca. So until next time, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and above all, have a good week. This is Chris, signing out. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to The Kick in the Cast, the audio blog of a wannabe podcast novelist. For more information, please visit the show's website at kickit.yo5.ca 
And to leave any feedback, please feel free to drop an email at outcastnovel at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and hope to see you next time.